You're listening to The Local Maximum, episode 291. Time to expand your perspective. Welcome to The Local Maximum. Now, here's your host, Max Sklar. Welcome, everyone. Welcome. You have reached another Local maximum. Sorry for the late hour and uh, and uh, you know late late timing of this particular episode. Uh, I had uh, well, we're gonna first we're gonna talk about an article that made it into the New York Times about the Internet Archive, which seems a little obscure, but it's very interesting to me, as you'll see. And then we're gonna move on to Bertrand's paradox and math. And <laughs> the reason why I was delayed is because I was trying to get through this paper, which is an academic paper. Uh, it's always uh, it's always tough trying to get through an academic paper for for the podcast. Sometimes very much very much worth it though. Um, so uh, let's get started. The article was the dream was universal access to knowledge. The result was a fiasco in the pandemic emergency. Brewster Kale's Internet Archive freely lent out digital scans of its library. Publishers sued. Owning a book means something different now. Uh, this is particularly interesting to me because I love this service of the Internet Archive. It's a site that it should be more well-known, honestly. It should be in your repertoire, you know, maybe not on the level of, of Google or, or, or Twitter, but, but somewhere around there, maybe on the level of, uh, of um, you know, uh, uh, Wolfram Alpha or something like that, which is a computational engine. It's extremely useful. And it also has a physical location. It's close to where I stayed with relatives when I went out to San Francisco periodically, back when I worked for Foursquare uh, in the inner Richmond district of San Francisco, which is on uh, Clement Street, right next to the Park Presidio Highway. Very nice area. Uh, come to think of it, the last time that I was in San Francisco at all, and probably the last time I walked by this uh, this place was April 2018, so over five years ago. Time really <laughs> does fly post-COVID. Uh, I've heard that parts of San Francisco have got, gone downhill quite a bit, uh, so we'll see what I observe uh, if and when I go back, though I have no plans to. Um, there were some areas that were a bit sketchy when I was there. Uh, when you're not dealing with the drugs and the crime, though, it's a beautiful city when you look up. They can't take that away from you, at least not for a while. Anyway, Back to our discussion on the Internet Archive, I remember first passing by that really interesting-looking building. Uh, well, in 2012, the first time I went there, but in, in 2013 um, was was the second time I went to San Francisco a year later. Uh, and, and the building is really interesting. I, I think it used to be a, a Christian Science Church. It's like kind of a, you know, kind of looks like uh, what's the style of the White House, old columns and all that. And there was the, this memorial for the death of. Aaron Schwartz, and, and Aaron was a young internet entrepreneur. Uh, he founded Reddit, one of the founders of Reddit. He was very active in the free information movement and the push to stop some of these egregious acts by Congress and their, their lobbyists to, uh, to close off the internet. Uh, so I actually met him in, in a meeting about the Stop Online Piracy Act in 2011, which they effectively blocked. That was going to give you know, the, the, the copyright lawyer so much more power. So I, I believe his efforts delayed these measures quite a bit. But now, <laughs> you know, if you delay something 20, 10 years, it's great. But it's, it's over 10 years later. Now in 2023, it's, you know, it's post-COVID. 
post-heavy internet regulation that really started overseas with GDPR, but but came for all of us ultimately, post you know conglomerate big tech social media with the, their widespread censorship and their their rough propaganda campaigns, which I believe you could probably put the start on that in in 2018. We talked about this on the show when they kind of stomped out Alex Jones, and everyone was like, ah, Alex Jones, who cares? But it 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 built it built to. To when you got to 2020, you couldn't say anything. You couldn't say <laughs> you, you could say some things, but it was it was very very heavily censored. I think we've hit the you know we've hit the the maximum on this, and I think that the turning point was um, in retrospect will be the uh, the takeover of of Twitter by Elon. But but we'll see. Uh, we're also post politicization of the justice system, t- intelligence apparatus, all this uh, you know. In America, let's be honest, you know, we're, we're kind of living through an authoritarian moment in, in history, although we can still hear, you know, we can still talk and do podcasts. So, so that's kind of nice. But, you know, a lot of it is like, hey, the people be damned. So all of the stuff that we want to do with Stop Online Piracy Act, even though it wasn't, you know, even though nobody wanted it and the people didn't want it, who cares? Uh, stuff has just returned with a vengeance as the powerful have kept pushing and pushing and pushing in Washington. And the Internet Archive, uh, so, so it, it is kind of disappointing that a lot of this stuff has been, you know, I think, um, you know, I, I think that the, what the, the powerful wanted to introduce, they, they got to introduce anyway. Uh, if, I mean, I'm not, you know, I haven't kept up on the, the laws of this country that much, so someone wants to correct me, let me know, but that's what that's what it seems like. So the Internet Archive, what's that? The Internet Archive saves the state of the Internet by taking snapshots of websites periodically. At least it's one of the things they do. So you look at different websites, and you could see what they look like in the past, and you could see what a certain websites who have been around all the way, you know, going back to the 90s. Even localmaxradio.com, the, the, the website for the show, or stickymap.com, which was my first kind of location-based site. I'm sure it, it, it all has it. So in some sense, uh, stuff on the internet does live forever, particularly if it's on static sites that can easily be crawled and it, you know it's not behind a paywall and it, it, it gets archived. So, you know, the, the stuff on Internet Archive it might not be searchable through Google or anything like that. You can't, like, you know, search for a phrase that has been taken off the, the site and you wouldn't get the link to the way, to the way back machine, which is what, what, they, what they call it at, at Internet Archive. But you can, you can see what a certain website said in the past. Very useful sometimes for websites that are changing all the time. Like, you can see what the cover of the New York Times was or whatever. So Brewster Kale runs the Internet Archive a venerable tech nonprofit, let's quote from the article here, Uh, in that miserable, frightening first month of the COVID pandemic, he had the notion to try to help students, researchers, and general readers. He unveiled the National Emergency Library, a vast trove of digital books, mostly unavailable elsewhere, and made access to it a breeze. This good deed backfired spectacularly for publishers claimed Willful mass copyright infringement ensued. They won. On Friday, the publishers said through their trade association that they had negotiated a deal with the archive that would remove all their copyright books from the site. The proposed judgment 
is an appropriately serious bookends to the court's decisive finding of liability, said Maria Palente, chief executive of the Association of American Publishers. We feel very good about it. The archive had a muted response saying it expected there would be changes to its lending program, but that their full scope was unknown. There was also an undisclosed financial payment if the archive loses on appeal. The case has generated a great deal of bitterness, and the deal, which is immediately approved by the judge, is likely to generate more. Each side accuses the other of bad faith and calls its opponents well-funded zealots who won't listen to reason and want to destroy the culture. In the middle of this mess are writers whose job is to produce the books that contain much of the world's best information. Despite that central role, they are largely powerless, a familiar position for most writers. Emotions are running high. 6,000 writers signed a petition supporting the lawsuit, and 1,000 names are on a petition denouncing it. The Romance Writers of America and the Western Writers of America joined a brief in favor of the publishers, while the Authors Alliance, blah, 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 you know. It's rarely this nasty, but free versus expensive is a struggle that plays out continuously against all forms of media entertainment. Neither side has the upper hand forever, even if it's sometimes it seems it's might. Quote, the more information is free, the more opportunities for it to be collected, refined, packaged, and made expensive, said Stuart Brand, the technology visionary who first developed the formulation. The more it is expensive, the more workarounds to make it free. It's a paradox. Each side makes the other true. So that last quote is very interesting. I want to ex explore you know, what Stuart Brand says uh, a lot more. Um, and it's something to think about as we head into the world of large language models and, and generative AI, which, you know, in some ways you could say it's not creating new information, but it's reorganizing old information. So what's the right business model here? Um, you know, I personally hope that someone finds a model that, that makes good content and information highly available. And it looks like the collection of free stuff is the way to do it. But how do you compensate the original content creators? Very interesting question. Uh, I personally, I used to love using these desktop apps like Napster and Kazaa way back 20 years ago, like when I was in college, as I'm sure the people who are my age will, <laughs> will remember. You could download free music, lots of free music, and apparently, I still have my, free, my music collection from that. Apparently, uh, that wasn't supposed to be allowed. That was a, that was a, uh, uh, the, the, the music industry didn't like that. But today, all music is highly available, uh, and the prices are extremely reasonable. So, I wouldn't call the loss of these things a total loss, uh, but some other types of content, non-music, you know, it just hasn't worked out in the same way. If I want a book or a textbook, and I want to check something in it, do I have to pay the $20? Do I have to pay hundreds of dollars for a textbook just to look something up, just to look at a particular chapter? It seems crazy. Um, you know, if I wanted to peek at a chapter, um, maybe I could do it. Maybe I'd do it if I could pay 50 cents and, and get it, but, but that's just not available. So the, the models they have, I think, are, are not effective. Um, you know, that whole micropayment thing is just, just one example, uh, but, uh, but something is wrong here. So continuing with the article, universal access to all knowledge was a dream of the early internet. It's an idea that Mr. Kale has long championed. As the United States lurched to, halt, to a halt in March 2020, he saw an opportunity. The Internet Archive would be a temporary bridge between beleaguered readers and the volumes shut away in libraries and schools. We weren't allowed to go to libraries. We weren't allowed to go to schools. Um, 
Yeah, there are a lot of places where we're allowed to go too. Uh, don't even bring that back. <laughs> don't even bring that up right now. It didn't hurt, turn out that way, not a bit. The emergency library shut down in June 2020, and three years later, Mr. Kale remained angry and frustrated. So, skipping ahead, library, librarians are custodians. Mr. Kale has spent his career working in tech, but he wants the future to behave a little, little more like the past. Uh, quote, if I pay you for an ebook, I should own that book, he said. Companies used to sell things. Media companies now rent them instead. It's like they have tentacles. You pull a book off the shelf and say, I think I'll keep this, and then the tentacle yanks it back. So that's interesting. I got really into ebooks. I had an ebook reader you know, going back to 2013, uh, I, or even earlier, probably like, like 20, 2010, like during, uh, during grad school. And it really got me into reading. It really got me into books, particularly when I had a really tiny apartment in, in New York City, uh, you know, that, that one room in the, in the East Village and, and, uh, <laughs> and uh, very, uh, you know, I had a small bookshelf, but I didn't have a whole lot of room for extra books. And if I did put in extra books, it would kind of be a burden for me. That's not so much true anymore. But this, this might be why I've been a binge on buying physical books recently, not just a little more space, but when you buy a physical book, you own it. You could give it away. You could mark it up. You could do whatever you want with it. You can do some of that with digital books temporarily. Uh, you know, hey, when you own a digital, uh, physical book, you can even make copies of individual pages, take photos or whatever. Um, maybe it's not technically legal, but if you do it for individual pages, nobody's going to bother you. I, I don't know. Maybe that's not technically allowed. All right, scratch that. <laughs> the digital medium, though, is different uh, because the ownership is not quite there, and it's never quite there unless you literally own the file. Um, but then, you know, you have to, it's harder to um, maintain. Uh, I mean, I have files that I've kept for many, many, many years, uh, but there's sort of a cost to maintaining that that doesn't exist for, for a book. So you're creating artificial scarcity uh, of, a, of a good with, with these ebooks that, that, that might have a very high demand. Not only that, I'm also worried that they're going to change digital books. They're going to you know, give it updates. Okay, it's fine to correct some spellings, some errors, uh, but there's also a portion of it where it's like erasing the past because it's inconvenient to our current ideology. So, you know, keep some physical books. Uh, the article that I'm reading here also has an amazing statistic, which I had no idea. This one, this one came out of the blue. Um, and, uh, and it kind of blew my mind. Uh, when Netflix was giving out DVDs, I would think that Netflix has more content available now in digital because DVDs, it's like how many DVDs you have lying around. But when Netflix was giving out DVDs that had 100,000 movies to choose from, now they have 6,000. In other words, they lost 94% of their content. Um, that's because of all the laws surrounding digital media. That that's an interesting statistic. It kind of seems suboptimal if, uh, you know, if they produce far less content than the system before with, with physical medium, with DVDs that no one was complaining about in terms of content property ownership. So that's, that's kind of fascinating. Uh, although, well, no, you didn't have to pay per DVD, but you, had, you could only get a few per month. On the other hand, um, when Netflix was giving out DVDs, it's not like people watch more movies now. How many movies can you watch? I probably watched more movies then. How many movies can you watch in a, in a month? I mean, maybe some people watch movies every day when they have Netflix. And then, you know, 
uh, because you had to mail the movie back in and, and get a new one, they were watching less. But uh, f- f- three, four movies a month, that seems kind of high anyway. So I don't know. I, it seems like they're artificially restricting the amount of movies and, uh, and digital videos that people can watch uh, uh, because of this. Uh, okay, the Times continues. It's a very long article. I would suggest if you're interested to read the whole thing, but I'm going to read some clips of it here. Uh, some necessary background for the New York Times. When a physical book is sold, the first sale provision of copyright law says the author and publisher have no control over that volume's fate in the world. It can be resold. They don't get a cut. It can be lent out as many times as the readers demand. The information in the text flows freely through society without leaving a trace. Religions and revolutions have been built on this. Thanks to their digital nature, ebooks are treated much differently. They can't be resold or given away. A library that wants to lend ebooks must buy a license from the copyright holder. These subscriptions can be limited to a number of reads or by periods of a year or two. Everything is tracked. Libraries own nothing. Skipping ahead. The Internet Archive's lending program, developed long before the pandemic, involved scanning physical books and offering them to readers in its open library, a practice called controlled digital lending. You know, you're artificially creating scarcity. Uh, One reader at a time could borrow each scanned book. If the library or one of its partners had two copies, then two readers could borrow it. So you're kind of making kind of a fake digital scarcity based on the uh, physical scarcity that exists. The archive defended making its own ebooks by citing fair use, a broad legal concept that permits copyrighted materials to be quoted in excerpt and the first sale doctrine. It could do what it wanted with its own books. No dice, wrote Judge John uh, Codal of the U.S. District Court in Manhattan. His decision granting a summary judgment for the publishers in March went far beyond the pandemic library. Any benefit for research and cultural participation, he said, was outweighed by harm to the publisher's bottom line. So interestingly, like you, you, you can't even lend out these books in a very constrained way uh, based on the physical scarcity, that, that, that's not good enough for them. So my question is, hey, how does the judge weigh that? How does he know, like, oh, the benefit for research and cultural participation is clearly less than the harm to the publisher? How, how, does, he, how does he measure that? How does he know that? And, and, and why does the judge have the, the, determine, have the authority to determine who benefits more? Um, you know, you'd have to read the decision. He might be just finding justifications for existing laws, but, but who knows? Uh, this is an amazing quote that I found in this article, uh, buried deep in the article. Listen to this, quote, digital is different than print because it is infinitely copyable and unprotectable, said Mary Rassenberger, the chief executive of the Guild and copyright lawyer. Quote again, if anyone could call themselves a library, set up a website and do the exact same thing the archive did, writers would have absolutely no control over their work anymore. Traditional libraries promote discovery, but publishers perennially worry that they cost sales. Most publishers are not purely profit-driven, Ms. Rassenberger said. If one were, you could imagine it might not allow libraries to have e-books at all. Oh, 
Oh, thank you very much, kind publishers, for not shutting down all the public libraries in the country. Truly out for the little guy. <laughs> and I know she was talking about just digital books here. I think they're like, okay, fine, uh, you know, uh, paper books. But the arguments that they're making here goes for paper books as well. It's like, oh, yeah, uh, we're, we're not purely out for, for money so long as we leave one library standing. We're, we're being nice to you. Uh, yeah. I <laughs> I, uh, because I could read stuff without paying it for, for it at the library. I do that all the time. I don't want to buy a book. I, I read at the library. Sometimes I skim a book at a bookstore, you know, like uh, a Barnes & Noble or something like that. There's nothing you could do about it. I mean, I suppose Barnes & Noble could do something about it, but they, they tend not to because they tend to like having people like me in that library because occasionally I buy something. So you just want to make me get up and walk four blocks to the library to, uh, to, to look at a book rather than having it right here at my computer. Uh, you probably prefer I don't have access to the library at all, but you are such nice people that you're going to allow the library to, to stand. Okay. Uh, <laughs> interesting quote. What do you guys think about it? Uh, locals, maximum.locals.com, I'd like to know. Uh, the article goes, I, I thought that was the I thought that was the um, the most interesting quote of the article. You can you can tell me if if you agree or not. Uh, the article goes on to quote a, a variety of opinions from authors, and there's like several paragraphs on this. Um, you know, some of the authors are very pro archive and anti publisher. Some are pro publisher, anti archive, and you know, I get it. As a writer, you want to be able to earn a living through writing books that people want. If you write a book that's in high demand, uh, you want to be able to uh, you know, make a lot of money on that, which I think you should be able to, well, I, I think you should be able to earn, earn money that way. Um, I think even if the books are easily available for free, you could still earn money that way, um, but that's not necessarily the way you have to do it. I'm not saying that your book needs to be everywhere for free, um, but there does have to be some allowance for free trade of information, and there has to be the ability to innovate on the system for monetizing these books because the system is is clearly crazy. The fact that you have to pay for the whole thing digitally to just look up a, a, a single section of it, um, the, the fact that um, the, the scarcity, there's kind of like an artificial scarcity being imposed that sort of mis measures physical scarcity, which seems like you know, why would that be the optimal thing to do? Uh, you're just kind of trying to mimic what, what was true before uh, based on the, you know, based on the, the physical properties of books, which doesn't make, make sense. You know, and some of this could be very good for writers. Writers have a monopoly on their own content. Uh, maybe this is a little bit of, uh, uh, of price discrimination. You know, students and such who don't have a lot of money to begin with could get it for free. Um, and then when they're older, they can pay for it. While older and wealthier readers maybe can pay extra, uh, you know, to get it in a more convenient form. I mean, I know I'd pay, um, you know, to have a book. Uh, if I really wanted a book, I want a physical copy and I want a digital copy, uh, you know, that, that both, both for, for, to be available. Um, because then, you know, I can have the physical copy on my shelf, but then if I'm traveling or, or whatever, I can have the digital copy available for me always. Um, that seems like, that seems like a good plan. So right off the bat, there are plausible business models to experiment with, which, uh, sounds like the publishing industry is, is not going to allow It's not really the publishing industry. It's also like our, our legal system and our government and all that. Um, so the, they've also gone after some of the music uh, recently stored 
uh, or on the Internet Archive. I should say, not music that has recently been stored on the Internet Archive, music that has been stored in the Internet Archive for a long time, um, but uh, lawyers have recently gone after that. Um, quoting from the article again, in the wake of the publisher's success, other parts of the Internet Archive have become a tempting target. Universal, Sony, Arista, and other music companies sued the archive in New York on Friday, saying it unabashedly seeks to provide free and unlimited access to music for everyone, regardless of copyright. The plaintiffs cite 2749 violations, 2,749 violations, all recorded with an antiquated format used before 1959, which, for which they are asking $150,000 each. Um, quote, now the Washington lawyers want to destroy a digital collection of scratchy 78 RPM records, 70 to 120 years old, built by dedicated preservationists in 2006, Mr. Kale said. Who benefits? So interesting article. Uh, this is a, a fitting one for me to talk about today because I was just in New Haven. And I happened to walk into Beinecke Library of, of Rare Books and Manuscripts, beautiful library, uh, and in it I saw the the Gutenberg Bible, uh, you know, the the first uh, book, uh, the first surviving book published with 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 movable type, uh, with with the Gutenberg machine. Um, I saw books that were handwritten by scribes from the 1400s, old encyclopedias, the the works of Seneca, all that. Um, now you can't go in and touch the physical books; you see them behind glass, which I'm thankful for because this stuff is so important. And I'm always like, I'm always worried. For some reason, I have this like um, anxiety. I'm always going to spill stuff on something. I'm going to, you know, get get, you know, you know, get get water on it. And I don't know that I get because I destroyed so much of my own stuff that way. <laughs> when I see uh, when I see very rare and precious and, and expensive stuff, I, I have this anxiety. So I'm kind of happy they they put it behind glass. But it turns out that because we because I was thinking like what's actually in these books. Turns out Yale actually makes digital copies of, of many of these works accessible uh, to the public on their website. And you can just go and, and look at them. Maybe you can get, um, you know, maybe you can get, uh, get some commentary on them. Some of them are written in very old languages, um, so, so we can't read them. But, but you, have, you have digital copies of them available. Now, fortunately, there's no scribe guild from the 14th century who are going to show up and, and sue everyone. But it kind of makes you think... You know, I'd love to be presented with some good solutions to our problems with uh, digital and physical print media today. Uh, I know we're not doing it right. So even if you want to get rid of all these laws, which I know many libertarians support, I do too, get the lawyers out of it. You still need a business model. What is that? Hopefully a good topic for another day or a good ongoing topic um, on that. All right. So um, real interesting, uh, Local Max Radio at gmail.com if you want to weigh in through email uh, check out the locals maximum.locals.com now I recently reviewed or I'm going to review now a new paper on the Bertrand paradox that uh, I came across my desk um, it's on uh, MDPI uh, uh, a, a math journal um, Bertrand's paradox resolution and its implications for the Bing Fisher problem uh, the author is Richard Chichil. I hope I'm pronouncing this right. Um, so we've spoken about the Bertrand Paradox on here several times. Episode 207, Max Returns with Priors. Uh, that was a good episode because it was the one that where I 
It was the first one where I was uh, I, I was back after being away for or after being sick for a while, and um, and uh, and it turns out really well. It was like at the errand at one in the morning, uh, and we talked about the the problem of assigning probabilities to things uh, that you know you know where uh, you don't have a whole lot of data. And or, or any data, like what, what's the uniform distribution? And, and we talked about this again in episode 260 where we did probability distribution of the week and we literally talked about the uniform distribution and we talked about the Bertrand paradox. So it's a really interesting question when it comes to assessing prior probabilities. Um, how likely do I think different events are? To, so to review, uh, what Bertrand was trying to do, or, or I mean, he wasn't, trying to do this because he really needed to do this. He was trying to do this because he was trying to prove a point. Was that he was trying to ask, well, what is, I want a random chord from a circle. You know, a, a random, you know, a chord is a line between, a uh, straight line between two, uh, two points on a circle. I want to just take a random one. What does it mean to have a random one? Well, he gave three methods for picking a random chord that all seem reasonable but they're all different. They all give you different answers. They all make different chords uh, uh, more likely or less likely depending on which method you use. So the first method is the radial method, which you kind of start in the center and then you know you can look 360 degrees all around you and, um, and you pick a random, a random radius. And so that's a random direction from the center, which, which is, you know, then, then that kind of creates a line from the center to the to the edge of the circle. Um, okay, great. Um, and, uh, and, and by the way, as, as we've also said on the program, you know, usually a distribution around a circle, the uniform distribution around a circle is not the contentious one um, because a, a uniform distribution around a circle is, is, is pretty, well, pretty well founded. So, okay, so that's good. So you have got this radial method, um, and then you have a distant, you have um you have a line between the center of the circle and the edge of the circle. Then you pick a, a, a random point on that line that's kind of uniform. All right, and, th and then you have a random point inside the circle, and that becomes the midpoint of your chord. You kind of draw a line that's perpendicular to that. That becomes your chord. So that's method one. The second method is, you know, you, you basically pick the, the, a random angle. You basically pick two two random points on the circle and then connect them. That's the chord. And the third one is you actually pick a random point in the circle and it's going to be uh, kind of like, um, how should I put it, like like uh, uniform within the circle. Uh, so it could be any point in the circle uh, uniformly based on like the rules of two-dimensional space. And then that point becomes the midpoint of the, of the chord that you draw. So these are three very different methods. Um, interestingly, the, the random point in the circle method, the third one, is, is related to the first one. It's just the radial method, but it's, it's using a different coordinate system. Um, so, uh, you know, for those of you who remember coordinate systems from high school, one is using the Cartesian coordinates and the other is using the polar coordinates, and you're randomizing, you're taking like uniform randomness from each one, but uh, the, the issue with that is, is that because you've rewritten the coordinates, your, your uniform distribution on each one are going to be different from each other because the whole, the whole number system is off. So, um, so uh, that, that, that's kind of the point here, that, that you know, it, what is uniform depends on your point of view. 
So what does this new paper say? So I've been I've been trying to follow it, and I'm I'm hoping to get some some follow up on this because I can't quite follow the argument yet. I'd have to talk to the author, but uh, they want to choose a random chord length, and uh, and they they kind of uh, they kind of find a fourth a fourth way for Bertrand to to, to build this chord. So what they do is they. They first they start by picking a radius or a point on the circle, just like what they did before. But instead of uh, instead of picking a number, but uh, uh, instead of picking a point between the center and that point on the circle, that random point in the circle is the start of your chord. Then where does the chord end? Well, you know you have a random point in the circle right now. Uh, it could be a very small chord. It could be like right next to it. Or it could be a very long chord. In fact, the longest the chord can be is a length two if it's a unit circle. So, you know, that would be the chord that is actually a diameter. It goes through the center of the circle. So they say, okay, well, the chord is between length zero and two. And they argue that they actually want uh, a uniform distribution uh, between the, the, the length of the chord. So it could be anywhere between zero and two. We're going to choose uniformly between that. And then, of course, you know, if you have a chord that's that's of length one, there's there's one that you could have you could have it go in two directions. You pick randomly based on that. So this is an interesting question. I, I think this is indeed a fourth logical solution to the other uh, the other three Bertrand results. But part of me is thinking maybe not because there's no reason why I can think of why the chord length should be the the main variable, why the chord length should be the one that should be the uniform. Because it seems to me, you know, there's a good argument to be made that you're much less likely to get the, the full chord near two, the full diameter, than somewhere in the middle. However, first I'm going to declare this to be a reasonable answer for sure, but this, this, this paper goes beyond that. It argues that this is the best uninformative answer. Uh, the papers are, argues that, yes, chord length is the variable you want to apply maximum entropy to. Chord length is the variable that you want to be indifferent to. That is the one that you want to, um, that you want to have a, a uniform distribution on uh, because that's the, that's the coordinate system we, we care about, essentially. So, unfortunately, I don't quite understand the argument. Maybe I'll have to have the author on. Um, but for the same reason, uh, the author, I believe, wants a uniform distribution on, on probabilities. So when you're picking a probability between 0 and 1, what's a, what's a random one? That they want a uniform one. That I think that's what he's talking about with the, the Bing-Fisher problem. Uh, we've gone over on the show reasons not to do that. Uh, so what do you think? Um, do, you think that, um, do you think this random, random chord length idea uh, solves the problem of Bertrand paradox? Uh, for those of you who are mathematically inclined, uh, check out the paper and let me know on maximum.locals.com or localmaxradio at gmail.com. All right, that's all we have for this week. I'm going to have Aaron on later this week, and we're going to put it out on, on Monday. Finally, we're going to get back to Monday, and we're finally going to do a, a news update, which we haven't done in a while because we have a lot of that, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to solicit some more uh, um some more guests, and I have a lot of guests in mind, uh, you know, that have come up, but I'm a little behind my my emailing of them. So we'll see we'll see if that goes. But we have a, we have a lot of news to catch up on, and a lot of uh, of topics to catch up on. Uh, so I, I hope I get in touch. Because uh, hope I get in touch with Aaron soon. And of course, we've got a lot of uh, uh, a, a, a lot of uh, um, yeah. The, those are the three things. 
articles, uh, current events, topics, and guests, <laughs> always. Um, nothing in particular. Well, there are certain things in particular in the pipeline, but, uh, but nothing to report as of now. So uh, I'm going to leave it at that and uh, look forward to Aaron next week. Uh, have a great week, everyone. That's the show. To support The Local Maximum, sign up for exclusive content and our online community at maximum.locals.com. The Local Maximum is available wherever podcasts are found. If you want to keep up, remember to subscribe on your podcast app. Also, check out the website with show notes and additional materials at localmaxradio.com. If you want to contact me, the host, send an email to localmaxradio at gmail.com. Have a great week. Feel the power.